March 2013, Raqqa. The Syrian revolution is in full swing. A crowd gathers around a statue of Hafez al-Assad in the centre of the city. The statue is of President Bashar al-Assad's father, and much like the al-Assad regime, has looked over this part of Syria for almost five decades. But not for much longer. Activists and members of the Free Syrian Army chant Allahu Akbar and fire at the statue as it's pulled down. The relic lies on its side. They climb on top of it. Raqqa is now the first provincial capital to fall to the revolution. But this was only the beginning. Darker times lay ahead. This is the story of Raqqa's revolution, why it failed, and what has become of the city after 10 years of war and revolution in Syria. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Gareth Brown, just back from Raqqa. And this week, we're looking at 10 years of conflict in Syria. Raqqa would eventually become synonymous with the horrors of ISIS. But before that, it was the first city to fall to the revolution. Hussam Hamoud is a journalist from Raqqa, who was in the city as it fell out of the regime's hands. He says Raqqawis hoped it might be an example for the rest of the country. You can say that we touched the hope that, okay, this city right now is a place that uh, the people against Assad regime can live in it. Yes, there were an airstrike, but no one can arrest you. No one can, uh, uh, can tell you to shut up. Don't say anything against uh, this uh, criminal regime. So we felt, uh, we felt hope. We hope that uh, the things will be better and we can, we can start liberating Syria from this uh, city. The civil opposition had been prepping for this moment and attempted to set up local governance councils to oversee everything from water and electricity to trash collection. They hoped to show they were serious when it came to governing a free Syria and Raqqa would be their first test. On the 1st of July 2013, the Raqqa Civil Council was established by dozens of groups and activists. Among them, Mohammed Abdul Karim al Hawedi, an activist who, almost a decade on, remains in Raqqa. He says there were 140 people at that meeting and jokes, it's still the only democratic experience he's ever had. <laughs> what ensued was an uneasy period of coexistence a time where everyone, from Al-Qaeda-linked groups to democratic activists like Mohammed, had a stake in the city. Richard Spencer is the Middle East correspondent for The Times. He reported from the city during this period of coexistence. He described to me what the atmosphere was like. The thing about Raqqa was that by the time Raqqa happened, right, by the time Raqqa fell in, in March, you know, there was already a fairly strong Islamist tendency, or you know, the Islamist tendency was already, you know, very powerful, perhaps most powerful part. Well, almost certainly in the broad terms of Islamists was the most powerful part of the revolution. And of course, because it was Russia, it was closer to Iraq, there was a strong jihadi element there as well. And so so that was the dominant feature in Raqqa. Could anything have been done about that? By the time Rakhavel, probably not. Certainly the 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 liberal activists we spoke to were all very optimistic and idealistic. But even they were saying, well, you know, there's no way we can stand up now against Jabhat al-Nusra and Nahar al-Shah. And some people did and were getting assassinated. Yet the democratic experiment didn't last long. All the while, one man with far darker beliefs had been scheming and laying the foundations for an ISIS takeover of the city. This is Abdullah al-Sheikh, 
a farmer from a small village on the outskirts of Raqqa. His family is something of a microcosm of the war in Syria. Abdullah is a Ba'athist, an out-and-out supporter of the Assad dictatorship that has ruled Syria for almost five decades. To his side is his brother Ibrahim. He's louder and more dominating, but the thick grey beard on his chin is an indicator of his adherence to Salafism, an austere interpretation of Islam that often finds itself at odds with the Assad regime. When the revolution came to Syria, Ibrahim embraced it. Abdullah wasn't convinced, but that didn't get in the way of their relationship. But there is someone missing, Abdullah's son, Ali Musa. On my recent trip to Syria, I spent time with Abdullah and Ibrahim. They told me the story of the key role Ali Musa played in the rise and fall of the revolution in Raqqa. Ali Musa was introduced to Salafism by his uncle Ibrahim whilst a young law student. As we entered his father's home in the village of Al-Sahel, he joked to me, I was the one who introduced Ali to Salafism. Yet Ali Musa's austere beliefs soon outgrew those to which his uncle had introduced him. And with the US invasion of Iraq in 2003, he wasted no time in joining the jihad. For several years, he crisscrossed the Iraqi-Syrian border, helping funnel jihadists into Iraq to fight the Americans. During this period, his uncle says, he became close to Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and one of the most important figures in the global jihadi scene. But that didn't last forever, and on one return trip to Syria, he was arrested by the Syrian regime. In the final months of his imprisonment, the demonstrations and acts of civil disobedience, which became the Arab uprising, began in Syria's neighbours. The protests duly spread to Syria and quickly across it, emerging in towns and cities all over the country, changing the face of Syrian society and the nature of her politics. Very quickly, both the regime of Bashar al-Assad and its international supporters diagnosed religious extremism within those challenging the Syrian dictatorship. Ali Musa was released from Syria's Sidnaya prison in November 2011. At this time, the revolution was becoming a serious concern for President Assad, and so he released thousands of Islamist prisoners. Assad tried to portray this as an amnesty at the time. Here's Richard Spencer again. The motivation, I, you know, it remains to be absolutely proven. But if you look at some of the people who were released, when Assad, you know, declared amnesties in 2011, I don't think people who said, oh, this is, you know, the sign that he, he might be interested in reform were thinking he was going to release people like Abu Khaled al-Suri, um, who was a, you know, jihadist of 20 years standing involved in fundraising in Europe, helped to finance the, you know, the Madrid bomb explosions in 2004. He'd been renditioned back to Syria by America, fought in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, and there were other people like him, you know, I don't think, I, when I, you know, when people were thinking, oh, he's, he's releasing opposition activists, I don't think that's people, I don't think it was people like him they had in mind, you know. Activists describe it as a cynical attempt to undermine the revolution's largely democratic characteristics and paint the opposition as religious extremists. It was a successful strategy, and Ali Musa would be one of the worst or best examples. After his release, Ali Musa changed his name to Abu Lukman and almost immediately set about scheming. He met with activists and fighters from across the spectrum, from the Democrats to Al-Qaeda. All had a stake in Raqqa. Yet this was no show of unity, nor an attempt to bring the opposition together. Abu Lukman was gathering intelligence on his rivals. It's hard to overstate the importance of Abu Lukman as the so-called son of the city plotted ISIS's takeover, says Hussam Hamoud. 
Yes, he's the host. Huh? He's the host man, Rakab Libu. Even yes, we have a lot of uh, your uh, foreigners, fighters, and blah blah. blah but none of the foreigner fighter uh, were able to come to Raqqa without Abu Luqman because he was coordinating everything, and he was he was the responsible one of winning the IS the battle that none of the world talked about it. That battle that Hussam is referring to is the one ISIS waged to take over Raqqa. After the regime had been pushed out in March 2013, a range of groups had been present in the city. Yet in the months after the regime's defeat in Raqqa, ISIS, led by Ali Musa, would begin a battle in the shadows to take over the city. Hussam says that for all the headlines of ISIS's foreign fighters, the group would never have been able to capture Raqqa without the efforts of this quiet local man. We are talking about uh, someone who organized everything. Organized it from the beginning to kidnapping the armed group, the other armed group uh, leaders, to killing them, to uh, coordinating with the foreigner uh, uh, fighters to come uh, to provide their way to Raqqa. We are talking about someone who, uh, who even was participating in uh, external uh, attacks for IS. So I don't think that uh, Daesh could uh, survive without this man, because he was from the, the first people uh, who created. But what was he plotting? Activists I met in Raqqa say that after his release from prison, Abu Lukman immediately went about getting to know every shade of the opposition in Raqqa. Then, when it came to 2013-2014, and ISIS's successful attempt to take over the city, he knew all the nodes, a wave of targeted killings, disappearances, and grisly murders stunted the rest of Raqqa's civil and armed opposition, something rights groups have described as a systematic campaign of assassinations. When I was there, there was an assassination of a um, you know, non-jihadi political leader who was trying to get, a, get these non-jihadi, but still quite Islamist, but non-jihadi battalions to join forces against Jabal al-Nusra, and this guy was assassinated while I was there. So you know, I think by then it was already too late. Among those disappeared was Abdullah Khalil, a former presidential candidate and human rights lawyer who headed the civil council. This is Mohammed al-Hawaidi. He says Abu Lukman was behind as many as 40 targeted killings of opposition figures during this period. On his release from prison, Abu Lukman, along with many of the others released from jails, were working under the flag of Jabhat al-Nusra. But they would soon switch sides to a new group, ISIS. As ISIS moved to completely take over the city, they knew everything there was to know about Raqqa's opposition. And it was all the doing of this quiet farmer's son, not the foreign fighters we've heard so much about. What ensued was a complete ISIS takeover of the city. Raqqa became the jewel in the crown of the caliphate. And ISIS named Abu Lukman its wali, or ruler of the city. The ISIS rule lasted until 2017, when a Kurdish militia known as the Syrian Democratic Forces, with the backing of an international coalition, took back the city. The battle was brutal. Richard Spencer remembers visiting the city shortly after ISIS had been ousted. It was the most, I mean, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life, I think, possibly, in terms of actual physical presence. I mean, it had been utterly, utterly de- destroyed by, um, by coalition bombing. I mean, there was not a single building complete in the whole place. Uh, nobody living there except a couple of cats, um, obviously bodies still there. Total, total modern day destruction and uh, full of this kind of fairly eccentric 
crew, the uh, the SDF were, were were there, and they were, you know, these this mixture of Kurds and a few Syrian Arabs and foreign supporters. On my trips to Raqqa since it was taken from ISIS by the SDF, I've seen the same destruction Richard describes, but I've also seen signs of a recovery. Earlier this month, I watched middle-aged men enjoy a karaoke concert, nursing large glasses of cheap whiskey. Shops and cafes are open, and there is some construction. But three years on, is Raqqa, now freed from the clutches of both ISIS and the Syrian regime, in a better state? Hussam paints a dire picture. For the people, they face the worst situation right now. And believe me, a lot of people inside Raqqa just say it, not because they love uh, uh, living under IS control or something, but they say under IS control, uh, yes, a lot of uh, terrible things have been, but they didn't control us and everything like, uh, like what uh, SDF said it. So, for example, uh, now SDF control all the sectors inside the city, the trade, the trade mint, and even rebuilding the houses. You have to, uh, uh, for for Raqqa people, they have to get approval from SDF uh, municipality uh, to rebuild uh, their houses. Hussam says that the Syrian Democratic Forces, the US-backed largely Kurdish militia, which freed Raqqa from ISIS in 2017, is forcing Raqqa's people to fight in wars that don't concern them. So SDF now just decide that to take Raqqa people to and put them in the front lines uh, against Turkey to fight in a war which doesn't belong to that uh, community. And uh, yes, since the beginning of SDF control, they tried to arrest uh, young people to take them to, uh, to the war. But now uh, we are talking about a new phase of that. We are talking about arresting teachers, arresting the civil employees, so that will affect on the stabilization of the city itself. Because if you want to take all the teachers to fight instead of uh, teaching the kids, as a result, you will find uh, a full generation who, uh, who doesn't know how to, uh, to read or to write. So I think that teaching the kids there is, is more important than fighting in a war for SDF. But what became of Abu Lukman, the son of the city who rose to become ISIS's emir? Well, he disappeared before the Kurdish advance on Raqqa and his family say they haven't heard from him since. Some reports claim he was killed in an airstrike in Mosul. Others say he died in Syria. But the simple answer is, we don't know. His father Abdullah says, despite everything that has befallen Raqqa, if by some miracle Abu Luqman remains alive, he'll be welcomed back to the village of Al-Sahel. Three years on from ISIS, Raqqa is still a troubled place. But despite all the horrors of the last decade, people say the revolution has not been defeated. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Gareth Brown. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe. And we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review to let us know what you think. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan.